This morning we come uh, to the place in the book of Esther where in a very ironic and really comical fashion the tide turns. Esther chapter 6 is where the tide turns in the book. So I want to recall for a moment the state of affairs at the end of the fifth chapter. Esther had hosted a banquet for the king and for Haman. And our text in chapter 6 opens late on that same night after that banquet. And Esther had requested, you'll recall, dangerously, a second banquet. She said she wanted to have a second banquet the next day. And she promised the king that she would tell him her request then. In the meantime, Haman had gone home and he'd gotten the counsel of his wife and his friends to execute Mordecai, who was still not showing him honor. Right? And he's to be executed on this pole which Haman is having constructed this very night. And his plan is to go back to the king, to Xerxes, in the morning and to seek permission to kill Mordecai. So tomorrow is the critical day. It's late at night when our text opens. Tomorrow's the critical day. Unless something happens beyond human agency, Mordecai is likely to be dead before Esther even goes in and pleads with the king for her people. So we're going to look at the text under three points. They're there on the back inside page of the bulletin. Sleeplessness, honor, and downfall. So it's Esther chapter 6. First, sleeplessness. Something beyond human agency does, in fact, happen here. Something trivial, something that seems incidental, having no significance. That night, that night, Not some other night, but of all nights, that night, the king could not sleep. Now, there is a whole, we saw this when we went through the Psalms a couple years ago, I think. There's a whole theology of sleep in the Bible. Sleep as an unearned gift that God gives to his beloved. And especially relevant here. Sleep as a reminder that our labors are not the decisive thing that makes the world go round. It's really remarkable, right? Like we run out of steam every 24-hour cycle, and we have to take a third of it in our bed in a little temporary death. Turns out, God runs the world just fine without us. He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Sleep is a reminder of the unnecessary character of human action. It's a sign that God watches and protects. That night, this is the first in a chain of coincidences, first event in this long chain, that night the king could not sleep. And one wonders, right, if Esther's strange strategy has gotten under his skin And made him just a little bit restless. Like, why two banquets? Why is Haman at both of these banquets? 
Is she interested in him? Is he interested in her? Are they seeking some kind of leverage on me? Right? It's not hard to imagine a king who's already been through a thwarted assassination attempt. Right? Getting a little bit paranoid in this situation. So what does the king do? He's restless. He can't sleep. This is the second. It just so happened link in the chain here. Out of all the possibilities that the emperor could choose, he orders the book of the chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and to be read to him. This is like going on Amazon and typing in, what is the most boring book in the world? What is the least interesting book you could possibly send me? And perhaps the king thinks this thing will put him to sleep. But perhaps, more likely, it's his narcissism because it's a record of his reign. The chronicles of his reign. And then there's a third link in the chain of coincidences, and you can find it in verse 2. It was found, the text says, out of all the volumes. Now remember, there's not one volume of the chronicles of the reigns of the kings of Persia. This would be a little mini library. Out of all the volumes that could have been selected, the volume that is brought and the place that is read happens to be the place where it is found, the text says, that it was Mordecai who had exposed the assassination plot against the king. Right? And thus, Mordecai was the one responsible for saving Xerxes' life. This was way back at the end of chapter 2. Might call that like a... We're told at the end of chapter 2 there that it was recorded in the book of the King's Chronicles what Mordecai had done. That's a background coincidence before we even get to these coincidences. The mere existence of these chronicles is a sign of God's providence. And that's been sitting there in these books. We said back then in chapter 2, like a ticking time bomb in the story. We just noted it back there. It was recorded. And you know how long it's been sitting there? Four years. That scribal record's just been sitting in that dusty old library. But the God who does not slumber or sleep Right? The unmentioned agent here who's knitting all these seemingly uninteresting choices and events together, he doesn't forget. And this detail is dug out of the archives just hours before Mordecai is slated to be executed by impalement. And the king, he's always eager to reward loyalty and to punish disloyalty. He asks... He asks his young attendant who's reading him the volume, what honor, what honor has Mordecai received for this? And the attendants tell him, nothing. Nothing's been done. Call that oversight the fourth link in the chain of events that's now unfolding. The king could very well be suspicious of Haman's role here. Remember, he had promoted Haman to prime minister in the wake of the conspiracy 
assassination attempt. Why didn't Haman investigate this murder attempt? And why didn't he reward Mordecai? In any event, the king, who never can seem to decide anything for himself, right, asked his advisors there, who's in the court? You know what that means? That means it's now early in the morning hours and people are showing up for work. Who's in the court? So here's your fifth coincidence. Notice the timing. Who's in the court, the king asks. And the text says, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace. He wants to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on this 75-foot-high pole, which is already set up, and it's already waiting. So Haman is chipper, and he's eager. He's at work early today. It's a big day for him, the oblivious narcissist. He's expecting a rubber stamp from the king on his plan, and then a happy day at work, and then a pleasant, delightful banquet later in the evening. And so they tell the king, Haman is standing in the court. And without delay, the king says, bring him in. Haman must be thinking, oh, this is going to be easy. Going to get this taken care of before anyone shows up at the office. So that's the sleeplessness. We will come back to this. Second thing I want to talk about is honor. Haman enters... And the king asks him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now notice, right, this is part of the comedy here. The man in view, Mordecai, he's not mentioned. Right? The king asks it about an anonymous man. What should be done about the man the king delights to honor? But this, this, of course, allows Haman to assume that it must be him. He's so vain. He probably thinks the question's about him. (laughs) He's so vain. It's hard to know if the king is intentionally setting Haman up here or he just happens innocently to ask the question this way. This is part of the deviousness of the book of Esther right here. Either way, the question sets Haman up for a fall. Is the king probing? Does the king suspect? Or does the king just happen to ask the question about an anonymous man? So call the wording of the question the sixth coincidence, the sixth link in the chain, which is now becoming a noose tightening around Haman's neck. Oh, and there's another deep irony here, deep literary irony. Haman... Long ago, in his vicious little propaganda speech to the king, when he talked about the people, a certain people who must be annihilated, purposely left the name of the people out to be deceptive. Right? And so now, mysteriously, on the brink of the story's pivoting, the king leaves out the name of the man the king is to honor. And predictably, Haman thinks, and the text tells you this, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? He's so vain. Remember, this is a guy who brags about his success. He brags about his kids. He tells everybody how rich he is. 
He jumps to conclusions too quickly. He's self-indulgent. And this public honor is an idol for him. You'll notice in his response to the king, you can see his vanity here. He mentions the man the king delights to honor four times. He begins and he ends his reply to the king with that phrase. The phrase itself sort of captivates his juvenile, frantic thoughts. He's obsessed with public perception. So he answers the king's question thinking he's the unnamed man. And of course, if you think you're the unnamed man, you're going to inflate the honor. It's like your boss saying to you, what sort of raise should I give to a wonderful employee? Right? And you think, you're in wonder- you think you're the wonderful employee. You're going to inflate in your answer. And so he inflates. Clearly, this is something that Haman has thought a lot about. He's got a ready-made answer for this. For the man whom the king delights to honor, he says, have them bring this royal robe that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden with a crown on its head. It's important to note what's going on here. The king's own robe and the king's own horse make this request very close to treason. These are the kind of things you would ask for if you were ascending to the throne. So so Haman clearly thinks that equality with the king is something to be grasped. But there's more. He says, for greater honor, let's have one of the prince's nobles lead the man around the city and say, this is what will be done for the man the king delights to honor. He's dreamed of this moment for a long time. Go at once, immediately, the king then says, commands him, right? And do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Mordecai the Jew, you'll remember, was the phrase of contempt, right? That an angry and enraged Haman used in the last chapter when Mordecai still refused to bow. You can see here, by the way, that Xerxes himself, the Persian king, does not appear to be anti-Semitic. He actually forgot the decree of annihilation anyway. He seems to be unaware that Mordecai the Jew would be under this death sentence. And he certainly doesn't know about the feud between Haman and Mordecai. By the way, this is a standard comedic device, right? When the audience knows more than the parties having the conversation. This is how virtually every sitcom works. This is exactly like the Abbott and Costello who's on first routine. What makes it funny is that you know more than both partners in the conversation know. Right? We know, and they're unaware of the comedic irony. Go ahead and do this for Mordecai the Jew. And he finishes. The king actually gives some instructions. He says, do not neglect... Anything you have recommended. Now, this is pouring salt in the wound. Twice the king says to Haman, hey, great idea, Haman. This is your deal. You fulfill your word. Do exactly as you have suggested. Don't neglect anything. Do it at once. 
So Haman is obviously in shock here. This is a bitter pill for him. This is a reversal he could never imagine. One commentator says, very funny, I think, humorously here, that in this scene, the early bird is gotten by the worm. The early bird is gotten by the worm. So Haman gets the robe. He gets the, the, the horse. He robes Mordecai. Again, this is another book of Esther literary thread. Right? Previously, his actions have robed or clothed Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes. Now he invests Mordecai with honor. So the fortunes of the Jews and the fortunes of their enemies are turned right here in the text. So imagine the scene. Surely, Haman has to have this suppressed rage. The words have to stick in his throat as he leads Mordecai around the streets of the city and says, this is what shall be done to the man the king delights to honor. His pride, his own love of honor have now gone before his fall. Or at least the beginning of his fall. And that brings me to the third point on the downfall. It's interesting to note that after this little ride... Mordecai returns to the king's gate. He goes back to work. You know why? Because it's not time to celebrate yet. Because the decree of annihilation against the Jews still stands. There's a a really beautiful uh, content humility in Mordecai here. He doesn't even seem to be fazed by this. He certainly doesn't entertain vengeance on Haman. It's like he ordered some sort of ancient, you know, Uber. And, and the horse gets there and he says, take me around the city and then drop me back off where you, let, where you found me. Because I have to go back to work. Thanks for the ride. Whatever, that's it. Mordecai takes the ride and just goes back to work. On the other hand, Haman is all drama and hysterics. He rushes home, the text says, with his head covered with grief. Again, this is the third, the end of three days of fasting for the Jews in sackcloth and ashes. Now their enemies begin to mourn. Now their enemies are covered in grief. This is, again, the point of reversal in the text. He runs home in this grief. He tells his wife and his friends again everything that happened. We saw him consult with his wife and advisors last week, too. For this sort of person, it's never, you know, I learned a very valuable lesson at work today. That's another thing Haman never says. This type of person is never broken by providence. They never connect the dots back to their own behavior. They always arrive at Damascus on their horse unmolested. Oh, was that a light from the sky? Well, anyway, I'm at Damascus on my horse. It's always somebody else's fault. And his advisors, who gave him this monstrous advice the day before about executing Mordecai, surprisingly here, these advisors speak like prophets, like Gentile prophets. They say this, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started. That's not even politically true yet, but they can see it coming. Since Mordecai's of Jewish seed or Jewish origin, you cannot stand before him. You will surely come to ruin. One wonders. 
Do they, do they remember the Gentile prophet Balaam? Right, who said that the God of Israel would triumph over the Amalekites? Remember, Haman's an Amalekite. Maybe they remember the promise to Abraham somehow. They've heard of it. And they know that if you curse the seed of Abraham, you'll be cursed. Your downfall will be inevitable, Mordecai. I mean, uh, Haman. And notice again, of course, as is always the case in Esther, God is not mentioned. But these Gentiles have this deep-seated fear or belief that you cannot oppose the covenant people without coming to ruin. Now, it's, it's astonishing that they give this advice to Haman. You can imagine Haman saying, What? You knew this and you said nothing when I issued a decree to annihilate all the Jews? Really, it's kind of baffling. There are a lot of mysteries in the book of Esther. If you read it carefully, this is one of them. Or Haman thinking something like, it would have been nice if you told me this yesterday. When you knew Mordecai was a Jew, and what you suggested then was that I execute him. That's why his advisors are virtually prophesying here. This is not their normal mode of counsel. It's an extraordinary scene, these Persians agreeing with Mordecai that some mysterious, unknown, unnamed, hidden, but present force will come to the aid of the Jews. And while they're talking, the king's eunuchs arrive. They whisk Haman away to the second banquet. The text says the banquet which Esther has prepared. She's in charge now. Haman may not know what's in store, but he knows that the gallows he built is not going to be occupied by Mordecai. And he knows that his own downfall somehow has begun. Right? Never has that old song, right, What a Difference a Day Makes, been more true than the last 24 hours of our story. So I want to make three points in closing. I'm going to call them honor, action, and coincidences. We need to see this in the text. Mordecai is moving. He's being transfigured, really, from a a suffering righteous man, unrecognized, to one vindicated and exalted, right? To a man publicly recognized. He doesn't grasp after the kingship. And yet honor comes to him. And we should see in this the humiliation and the Exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And Jesus is now lifted up. Jesus is now exalted as the man, the king, delights to honor. The man, God, the king, delights to honor. The son in whom the king is well pleased. And his descent... Jesus' descent is steeper than Mordecai's. He rode on a donkey around the city in lowliness and was mockingly dressed, mockingly dressed in robes, purple robes of royalty and a crown of twisted thorns and scheduled for execution by the empire on a gallows he was not delivered from. 
And his ascension to glory is infinitely greater than Mordecai's because now he rides on at triumph, clothed in majesty. The seed of Abraham, Jesus the Jew, the son in whom God is well pleased, the one he delights to honor, who now gets universal public honor. And you, we are called into union with that Jesus and with that way of being in the world, losing our lives to save them, not grasping for honor, but emptying ourselves and waiting for honor to be bestowed upon us in God's good time. Secondly, I want us to see something about action here. This is one of the very crucial lessons of this text and of the book. And it is that our action, right? We've talked a lot about the tactics and strategies and actions of Mordecai and Esther. Our action, as important as it is, right? Because God God deigns to use us. Our action is not operating on the same level as God's. And it's something God can work above or against or without with ease. We and our planning and our diligence are not needed. Right? We are honored to be called into cooperation with the divine purpose or design. Notice this, beloved. The story turns here, not elsewhere. The story turns here. Why is it significant that the story turns here? Because it turns here where Esther and Mordecai are both absent or passive. Nothing about their boldness or about their tactics or about their actions enter into the scene. Mordecai triumphs this night while he's sleeping. While he's sleeping. And Esther's plan has not really even gotten off the ground yet. God saves the Jews by disturbing the sleep of the king. And having the exact right boring text dug out of a library and brought to him. That's it. He could have done this earlier, you know. Effortlessly, without our aid, God is able to save. That's why Psalm 127, another sleep psalm about how God gives sleep, says it's vain for you to work all day long and toil all day night. God gives his sleep, sleep to his beloved, right? Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. Unless the Lord builds it, the builders labor in vain. You see that in this text. Neither Mordecai's political pressure nor Esther's diplomacy and tactics, nothing is needed at the decisive moment. It's very important that we understand that the the same God who summons us to human action, to responsible human action, that same God who says, come and be my co-workers, in summoning us to act, relativizes our action at the same time. Christians are good at getting the first part. God wants us to do this and this and this and this and this and this. They're not so good at getting the second part that at every point God doesn't need our action. And he relativizes our action. That's, what being, that's why our actions are justified at every point by faith alone. The God who summons you to act 
at the same time he summons, reminds you, I don't need your actions. And your actions are infinitely below relative to mine. I deign to, to condescend to bestow glory and honor on you to invite you to act with me. But every once in a while, in Scripture, God reminds us, I can do this by myself. I can save the Jews by just disturbing this king's sleep. So finally, coincidences. Someone once famously said that coincidences are just God's way of remaining anonymous. And there's some truth to that. God is, if you will, masked and subtle. There is an indirection about the way he tends to act. But one of the things this text indicates to us is that the most mundane, what we might even be tempted to call unspiritual things, the most boring, this worldly regularities, these things, right? The, the anonymous, silent God is ordering them for our sakes. It's the ordinary stuff. It's sleep and uh, the minutes from some meeting that the king had four years ago, right? That carry the day here, that are used by God. There is a mysterious depth. Like there's a strange design in the ordinary stuff of life, and we should be alert to it. Because the very details of things are divine appointments. And so here, the history of the world turns on just the inability to sleep or some dusty old chronicles. So it could be a commonplace encounter. It could be an interruption, an emergency, a phone call, an email. Right? It could be a chance event. It could be a quiet moment. But God's providence in your life is mostly little stuff. 98, 99% of life is little stuff. A word or a look or a tone of voice or some body language or daily errands, daily disciplines, maintenance, upkeep, work, eat, sleep, repeat. That is the lion's share of human existence. And it's in those things, even if we can't see it, even if they lay hidden like ticking time bombs, that God is at work. And that should encourage us. That should encourage us. We both take the little details seriously and know that God is the decisive actor who relativizes our actions. Frederick Faber is a hymn writer. He said this, Thrice blessed is he to whom is given the instinct that can tell that God is on the field when he is most invisible. Let us cultivate that instinct, this sense that God's fatherly hand is measuring out our daily portion, ordering our steps, and is present in sovereign, invisible wisdom and goodness in all that befalls his people. Amen. Amen.